Disclaimer. South Park is the property of Trey Parker and Matt Stone. All opinions voiced are our own and not theirs. The following program contains educational course language and due to its hilariously inappropriate content should not be listened to by anyone. Welcome to episode 14. My name's Amanda. And I'm Sophie. We've already tackled some intricate topics, and we're excited to bring you more. This South Park podcast is nothing like you've heard, as it dives into the complex social constructs and issues the South Park plays off. We hope you leave today thinking, I learned something today, and had a chuckle. Today's South Park episode is season 2, episode 2, Cartman's Mom is Still a Dirty Slut. This episode touches on first world fascination with crime, and who can be a parent, a.k.a. anyone. Fun fact, this is the first time Kenny gets to deliver the oh my god, they killed line, considering that most of the oh my god, they killed lines are referring to him. Before we start, let's do a recap. We're going to read you the recap because you don't have time for that. Right as Dr. Mephisto is about to announce who Cartman's father is, the electricity goes out, the room is darkened, and two gunshots are fired. As the lights come back on, everyone discovers that Mephisto was shot. Chef feels his pulse, sees that he is still alive, and rushes him to the hospital. Upon entering the hospital, they meet Dr. Doctor and Nurse Goodley, a nurse with no arms. They are the only ones working in the hospital. Meanwhile, back in town, the crew for America's Most Wanted shows up, wanting to base an episode on Mephisto's shooting mystery. They run through auditions for Mephisto, Chef, Officer Barbrady, Mr. Garrison, and Kevin to play out a reenactment. In the hospital, the doctor finally manages to get Mephisto on a life support system, but has many other patients to tend to. Outside, a terrible snowstorm brews, preventing any other doctors from driving to the hospital, so the doctor, along with the nurse, has to help everybody. When shooting the reenactment for the TV show, a tree falls on the power line and the power goes out, so the adults are stuck in a little building until the storm lets up. After only a few minutes, Jimbo comes up with the sensible solution of cannibalism in order to stay alive, since no one has had any food in hours. Even though people tend to resort to this after a matter of days, not hours. They choose to eat Eric Roberts first, who played Kevin in the reenactment. Almost as soon as they finish him off, the residents remark that they are famished and haven't eaten in a long time, regardless of the bones they had just finished picking. They eat the rest of the production crew, who in fact oppose the very idea. Back in the hospital, the power goes out, so they have to come up with a plan to put it back on. The doctor suggests that they all switch into two teams, Team A and Team B. Team A consists of Eric, Stan, Kyle, Chef, the doctor, and Nurse Goodley. And Team B consists of Kenny. Team B's job is to go outside and reconnect the generator, while Team A's job is to go upstairs to a lounge, watch television, and drink hot cocoa. I know which team I want to be on. Unfortunately, the trip to the generator involves first wading through a sewer and then going outside, fending off any velociraptors that might attack. Once Kenny gets to the generator, he discovers there's no wires connecting the cords, so he decides to make the connection himself to restore the electricity, electrocuting himself in the process. Thanks, Kenny. The power is back on so Mephisto can survive. At the closing of the episode, Mephisto gathers with everyone in the emergency room to finally reveal Cartman's father. The answer? Mrs. Cartman. 
Explanation? Mrs. Cartman is a hermaphrodite, meaning she has both male and female genitalia. She actually ends up getting another woman pregnant who gave birth to Cartman, which arose the final question, who is Cartman's mother? All right. So first off, let's talk about the TV trope of the lights going out and somebody dying. The lights going out and Mephesto getting shot in the dark is a common cliche of detective and murder mysteries, where just as someone is about to tell an important bit of information, they are shot by a mystery attacker. This trope describes the basic situation where a story's characters are attending a masquerade ball, a dinner party, or any event with a sizable amount of people, and the lights go out. Usually this is accompanied by screams, chaos, and people trying to feel their way through the dark, but most importantly, as soon as the lights come on, someone is found to have been murdered in all of the commotion. The general reason for this trope is often to establish a mystery where, in the dark, anyone could have done it. Dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. However, in real life, this kind of murder would be very difficult to actually pull off. You know how most people listen to true crime and they could probably pull off a murder? I'm gonna let you know how this trope is not gonna work in real life. The murderer would have to be able to see in the dark in order to avoid tripping over things or bumping into people. Then they'd have to correctly identify the person they want to kill without seeing their face. This sometimes leads to a plot twist where it turns out that someone else in the room was actually the murderer's intended victim. They'd also need to work out how to discreetly get the lights off in the first place. Everyone's going to suspect that shady looking fellow who was hanging around the light switch might work more plausibly if the murderer has an accomplice who waits until the murderer has their target within reach before killing the lights. It's best not to think about this too hard when committing a murder. And any FBI agents listening, we're not giving advice. We're just speculating. There's always that joke where somebody will Google how many pints of blood does someone need to die or, or how many pints of blood does someone need to lose to die or where is the pressure point in someone's neck to kill him. And most people has to have to specify, we're not murderers, we're actually writers. <laughs> we don't want to kill anyone. Just want to learn about killing people. Exactly. So why are we so obsessed with true crime? Why do we listen to true crime podcasts or watch Netflix documentaries? Why is there a convention called CrimeCon? And here's what the experts have to say. So the first point is that evil fascinates us. The true crime genre gives people a glimpse into the minds of people who have committed what forensic psychologist Dr. Paul G. Mazzuri calls a most fundamental taboo and also perhaps a most fundamental human impulse. Murder, in every case, he writes, there is an assessment to be made about the enormity of evil involved. This fascination with good versus evil, according to Dr. Mitchell Mantle, the former chief psychologist of the San Diego Police Department, has existed forever. We want to figure out what drove these people to this extreme act and what makes them tick, because we'd never actually commit murder. We want some insight into the psychology of a killer, partly so we can learn how to protect our families and ourselves, Lost Girls author Caitlin Rother told Hopes and Fears but also because we are simply fascinated by behavior and the many paths that twisted perceptions can take. The second point is because of the 24-7 news cycle. Even if we've been fascinated by crime since the beginning of time, we likely have the media to thank for the uptick in the true crime fad. Since the 1950s, we have been bombarded in the media with accounts of crime stories, and it probably came to real fruition in the 70s, Mantle said. 
our fascination with crime is equaled by our fear of crime. Later, Mantle noted that the media understands if it bleeds, it leads. And probably 25 to 30% of most television news today deals with crime, particularly personal crime and murder. Violent, predatory crimes against people go to the very top of the list. Now, our next point is kind of what we brought up before. It helps us feel prepared. According to Megan Borsma in Ellen Law Review, studies of true crime have shown that people tend to focus on threats to their own well-being. Others have noted that women in particular seem to love true crime, and psychologists believe it's because they're getting tips about how to increase their chances of survival if they find themselves in a dangerous situation. Before we continue, my vehicle's boot, or as most people will call it, a trunk, was not working for the longest time. I think my button got stuck or something. And in every trunk, there is a pulley, like a string that you pull, and it will open the trunk immediately. And my mom was horrified when I told her about it. And I was like, you know, every trunk has this, and it's in case you get locked in the trunk, and you can pull it, and you can get out. And she was like, oh my God, how do you know this information? And I was like, ah, true crime. <laughs> I know how to, if I get thrown in a trunk, I know how to get out of it. So. See, and for me and my brother, that was just a fun game to play when you were a kid. Can you get out of the trunk? Yeah. <laughs> you were prepared. You were ready. <laughs> One study published in 2010 found that women were more drawn than men to true crime books that contained tips on how to defend against an attacker that they were more likely to be interested in books that contained information about a killer's motives than men were, and that they were more likely to select books that have female victims. Quote, Our findings that women were drawn to stories that contain fitness-related information made sense in light of research that shows that women fear becoming the victim of a crime more so than do men. The researchers concluded the characteristics that make these books appeal to women are all highly relevant in terms of preventing or surviving a crime. Amanda Carey, the study's lead author, told the Huffington Post that, quote, by learning about murderers, who is more likely to be a murderer, how do these crimes happen, who are the victims, etc., people are also learning about ways to prevent becoming a victim themselves. Watching, listening, reading about real crimes could be like a dress rehearsal. Dr. Sharon Packer, a psychiatrist and assistant clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Iken School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. <coughs> nope. <laughs> it just reminded me of Sinai. Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. Oh, fun fact. How you can tell if cyanide is in anything is that cyanide smells like almonds. And most people can't taste it. But if you taste almonds in your beverage that was not supposed to have almonds in it, you might have been poisoned. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> According to crime novelist Megan Abbott, men are four times more likely than women to be victims of homicide. But women make up 70% of intimate partner homicide victims. Quote, I've come to believe that what draws women to true crime tales is an instinctual understanding that this is the world they live in. Abbott wrote in the Los Angeles Times, and these books are where the concerns and challenges of their lives are taken deadly seriously. Next point, we're trying to solve the mystery. How many times have you been watching a documentary, especially unsolved crimes on Netflix, and you're like, I can solve this. 
you know? Police with years of experience, they've missed this one key. I can solve this. Humans are like puzzles, and true crime shows and podcasts get our brains going. Quote, by following an investigation on TV, Scott Bond, professor of criminology at Drew University and author of Why We Love Serial Killers, writes, people can play armchair detective and see if they can figure out who done it before law enforcement authorities catch the actual perpetrator. Dr. Catherine Ramslin, a professor of forensic psychology at DeSales University, told Hopes and Fears that, quote, most true crimes on TV and in books are offered as a puzzle that people want to solve. That puzzle is a challenge for the brain and figuring it out provides closure. Last point, because true crime is strangely reassuring. Experts say watching true crime can be oddly comforting, a way of reassuring yourself that such a terrible fate could never befall you. Quote, you separate yourself from the victim, like I'd never be naive enough to marry a man who's been living a double life as a serial killer, end quote. Margaret Levin, a doctor of clinical psychology based in New York, tells Health, you don't have the background or you didn't have the experience that would lead you to be tied into this. Unfortunately, that thinking is also part of how we get to blaming the victim, Levin explains, because we want to think the person who suffers did something to deserve that so that we think that will never happen to us. Just world hypothesis. Exactly. Vicarely agrees, pointing to... Oh my god, it's right there in my Sorry. nose! <laughs> that's, I didn't mean to ruin that! No, that's amazing! <laughs> there you go. Just as Amanda says, Vicarely agrees, pointing to the just world theory for context. It's this idea that people have an innate need to view the world as a safe and orderly place where bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. And so there's this tendency to be like, was she drinking? Was she walking alone at night? Did she forget to lock the door? What was she wearing? What was she wearing? Because it's really scary if the person did everything right and was home with the doors and windows locked and something still happened to them. Because then you have to admit, oh my gosh, that could happen to me. Speaking of that could happen to me, uh, so in the episode, South Park is visited by Sid Grenfield, the director of the television series America's Most Wanted. America's Most Wanted is a television program hosted by criminal investigator John Walsh, alerting the public of fugitives at large. The show features reenactments of dangerous fugitives that are portrayed by actors with on-camera interviews and with Walsh in a voiceover narration. Each episode also features photographs of dangerous fugitives, as well as a toll-free hotline number where viewers could give information at 1-800-CRIME-TV. The show started in 1988 and ran until 2013, due to low ratings and the level of royalty payments to Fox, which holds the trademark and copyright. In January of 2020, though, Fox announced plans to revive America's Most Wanted, and the revival premiered this year, March 15th. The show seems to be successful though because as of April 20th, 2021, they have caught 1,190 fugitives just from tips alone. So remember how I said it can happen to you, it can happen to me? A personal story that actually has to deal with America's Most Wanted. So my fiance's mother and father, they owned a little cafe when he was young and you know, unfortunately, they did end up separating, but they kept the cafe for quite a while. 
And there was always this one gentleman who would always come into the cafe and he kind of... <laughs> Amanda's giving me a creepy look. I'm afraid. Oh, yes. It gets worse. I'm afraid of what's coming. <laughs> so he would always come in. He was a very nice gentleman. And uh, my fiance's mom and him didn't really start seeing each other, but they kind of had a friendship, which oh, I'm not entirely sure if it ended up in anything else, but he was around a lot. And one day, they just ended things. They didn't, you know, whatever, went their separate ways. He stopped coming in the cafe, and that was fine. A couple of weeks later, the police come in, and they're looking for this person. And my fiance's mom has no idea who they're talking about, but, you know, says if she has any information, obviously, she would pass it on. And she sits down to watch TV that night, and his face pops up on America's Most Wanted. The name he gave her was not the right name. And I can't remember what he was wanted for, but he was wanted in America. He'd come up to Canada. So now the the local police were looking for him. But just goes to show, you have no idea who you're meeting. People can give fake names and everything. And thankfully, nothing happened. they kind of just blow it off as like a whew, that was a close call. That was a close call. But um, I guess it even goes to say, even because we're talking about crime, it reminds me of Ted Bundy, yeah. where he had a girlfriend and he never hurt her. And, you know, girlfriend had kids, but uh, he also murdered a bunch of women. So you never know. You never know who you're sleeping next to. Dun, dun, dun. So now what we want to do for each episode is provide you with a place to learn more. Of course, there are a ton of Netflix true crime documentaries. You could watch Abducted in Plain Sight, Conversations with a Killer, Ted Bundy, The Night Stalker, and my personal favorite, which I brought up, is Unsolved Mysteries. But since we are a Canadian podcast, also shout out to these Canadian true crime podcasts. The first one is Dark Poutine, hosted by Mike and Scott from Vancouver, BC. Not Always Polite, hosted by Celine from London, Ontario. And last not, but not least, Canadian True Crime, hosted by Kirsty. She's an Australian living in the GTA. And for those who don't know, that stands for the Greater Toronto Area. Okay, guys, now on to my topic, which is nowhere near as intense as the topic that Sophie just covered. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this episode raises some interesting topics, the main one being, who is Eric's father? Well, the answer that we got was not the black and white evidence that we were anticipating. But there is more than one way to bring a baby to the world and to become parents. So we want to talk about that. So before we dive in, I want to send some love out there to all of our listeners who are struggling with fertility issues and may find this topic a little bit tough. You're not alone. You got this. And we're sending you our best thoughts. Okay. Now let's start with the good old classic natural way of making babies. It's a star. The stork, right? <laughs> yes, the stork comes with the basket and delivers the baby and mommy and daddy never touch. <laughs> <laughs> this is, of course, the quote-unquote natural way is through sexual intercourse. When a woman is at that point in her menstrual cycle in which she is ovulating and there is an egg that is produced by her uterus and the egg is then met with the sperm at the exact right moment the egg becomes fertilized and it could continue to grow into and develop into a fetus this may be quote the old-fashioned way but it's not always as easy as some people make it out to see 
The egg and the sperm have to meet at the exact perfect second, which can be really, really hard to pinpoint. And there can be other biological complications that are relative to the individual. As we're all different people and our bodies are all different and we all have different aspects to us. So what's easy and possible for one person is impossible and not as easy for another. Thanks to modern medicine and science, we now have more options when it comes to creating life we go from like death to babies. Yeah, we were, this is the old title. title. Death to babies. <laughs> oh, yeah. Murder to babies? Mm, that might be abortion. Death in life. But no, I like that. Death to babies. No, no, not death mm. to babies. Murderers to babies? We'll, we'll come up with some. Along those lines, murderers and babies. <laughs> Taking life and giving life. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, I feel like my mom always had that thread of like, I gave you life, I'll take it away. <laughs> One of these options is something called artificial insemination. So this is when a sperm sample is collected either from the intended father of the baby or from a donor. Depending on the individual circumstances, the sperm sample is then inserted into the vagina of the intended mother or a surrogate mother. And just to clarify, a surrogate is someone who is simply meant to help carry the baby to term Every situation's a little bit different, so don't blanket each and every surrogate, but basically they're involved in bringing the baby into the world. So this process allows for the combination of the sperm and the egg to take place inside a person with a vagina's uterus. Another option is called in vitro fertilization, or IVF. This is when we take an egg and a sperm sample from both the intended mother or donor or the intended father or donor. The samples are collected and mixed together in a scientific lab, and from there, they're implanted either into the intended mother or surrogate mother. So this looks a little bit different because the moment that the sperm and the egg meet for the first time happens outside of the mother's body, happens in the lab. So they can control and pinpoint that exact process much easier. And of course, there's always adoption as an option. Just because a child does not physically come from a person's body or DNA does not make them any less of a parent, regardless of gender, sex, culture, anything. The only thing that can affect a person's ability to become a parent is their willingness to love and care for a child. So who can produce a baby? Anyone is able to participate in the child-making process and pass along their genes in DNA as long as they are fertile. Being fertile means that the reproductive organs within your body are fit to produce either an egg or the sperm needed to create life. However, again, not everyone's body is the same, and some people's bodies and their reproductive organs do not make it possible for them to have children. So this means that they are infertile. This can be for any number of reasons. It could be something that someone was born with, or it could have been an accident that happened to them, or it could be a choice that they made, or it could even be a sickness. There are any number of reasons as to why people cannot have children. As pointed out in the episode, they claim that Cartman's mother is, quote, a hermaphrodite who is incapable of producing children, so she must have gotten another woman pregnant. Just to touch back on one of our previous episodes, we should all remember now that hermaphrodite is a bit of an outdated term, and now we use the term intersex to mean individuals who are born with both male and female genitalia. Every person is different. One person may have intact female ovaries and be able to carry a child, but another may not. So just because a person is intersex doesn't mean they can't produce children. It depends on the individual's circumstances. But again, as we've said, anyone who wants to love and care for a child can be a parent, 
regardless of whether or not that child comes from that person's DNA. All right, so now it's the part in the episode where we talk about our favorite part. Amanda, tell us what happened to Kenny. So as you guys know, my man always dies. So my favorite part of this episode is when Kenny is killed. But this particular death scene just upset me because they set him up to fail so hard. And quote, Okay, so from the window here, as you're outside fixing the dangerous wires, you'll be able to see us through the window, drinking hot chocolate and watching TV. Why would you set my man up to fail like this? It's heartbreaking. Well, as the doctor says at the beginning of the episode, they are an equal opportunity <laughs> employer. So he was just wanting to give Kenny that opportunity to, to die. Basically <laughs> die, yes. And Sophie, what's your favorite part of the episode? So I love Mrs. Cartman's determination. She is so determined to get an abortion. She's going to every politician, every higher up, everything to get this abortion. And when she finally gets it, you know, I think she's with the president. Is it Bill Clinton? I think so. Kind of looks like a Bill Clinton. When she finally gets to the top of the top and they say, you know what, Mrs. Cartman, for sure, you can have your abortion. We can terminate. And she's like, terminate? Oh no, I don't want to terminate my child. I just want to like give him away. And they're like, do you mean adoption? She's like, you know what? This is hard. I think I should just tell him the truth. And I just love that she's very determined, a little confused, but she still got what she wanted. Yeah, yeah. She gets shit done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's not a dirty slut. She's a determinated, powerful woman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. We will be putting out episodes weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is at two female prime ministers. Reach out to us and let us know what you liked, how we can improve, and share us with your friends. If you really liked us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts so other people can find us. We hope after listening to our show today you thought, you know, I learned something today. Bye! Bye.